1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Bryce Bongiovanni, your host. And today my guest is Thomas Guthrie, professor of sociology and anthropology at Guilford College and the author of the new book Recognizing Heritage, The Politics of Multiculturalism in New Mexico. Uh, Tom, I'm glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So to start out with... Tell us about yourself, uh, some biographical information, your academic career, and how you got involved in anthropology and your subject matter in general.
0: Sure. I'll, I'll start out on a confessional note. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and in high school, I became really fascinated with cultural difference. I began listening to music from all over the world from Cuba, West Africa, China, the Mississippi Delta. Uh, I loved anything that could be labeled ethnic, ethnic restaurants, ethnic clothing, art. I, I was really interested in American Indians. Dances with Wolves came out, and I loved that movie. I was highly romantic in high school. And my interest in cultural diversity made me critical of colonialism and the spread of Western culture. And I became a critic of colonialism in high school, but in a very superficial way. I was a good example of what Stanley Fish calls a boutique multiculturalist. Hmm. So I went to college and began studying anthropology, which was a pretty natural transition for me, given my interest. My interest in colonial encounters deepened and became a little bit more sophisticated. I focused my studies on colonial encounters in North America. And there were three themes of my college career uh, that really interested me the most. One was the relationship between anthropology and colonialism. I learned that anthropology is a discipline with deep colonial roots and that anthropologists have a lot in common with explorers, missionaries, traders, other people who go to a foreign place and live for a while and then write about their experiences. Um, A second theme was uh, instances in which colonizers admired or praised the cultures of the people they were colonizing. So as I became more critical of my own romanticism, um, I became more interested in studying the political and historical dimensions of romanticism in colonial context. And then a, a third theme of my college career was various forms of cultural representation. In college, I was mostly focused on historical texts. But this interest in cultural representation expanded after I graduated from college. I had an internship at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I worked on at the Smithsonian was the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, which is a really big cultural, living cultural program that takes place every summer on the National Mall In Washington, the Smithsonian brings people from all over the world to uh, demonstrate their cultural skills and knowledge and traditions. So I became really interested in public cultural representation, public folklore, and museums. Everything that the Smithsonian was doing was founded upon a very strong multicultural ethic, a commitment to, to nurturing cultural diversity. And this was an ethic that I became passionate about. But I also realized how complicated public cultural representation is. So I decided to go to grad school. I went to the University of Chicago to study anthropology and to pursue all of these interests. And after my first year in grad school, I had an internship at the Anasazi Heritage Center, which is an archaeology museum in southwest Colorado near the Four Corners. It's run by the Bureau of Land Management. I had always been interested in the American West. I think the the West is a really great place to to study North American colonialism. And while I was there in in the Four Corners, I visited a bunch of different national parks and monuments in the Southwest. So at this point, federal land management, museums, cultural heritage uh, were all kind of coming together for me as uh, things that I was really interested in. I I. I started thinking a lot about how the National Park Service represents Native American cultures and history. And the following summer, I spent two weeks traveling around northern New Mexico and southern Colorado looking for a dissertation project. Uh, I was intrigued by New Mexico's double colonial history. New Mexico was colonized first by Spain and then by the United States. It's a really complicated region where land, water culture, identity, are all really contentious and politicized, and the effects of colonialism are still very much evident in New Mexico today, and and they're very much on people's minds. So I eventually found a project uh, that the National Park Service was just beginning to develop, and it was big and complicated and abstract, and it, uh, it appealed to me intellectually, and that then became the focus of my dissertation, and then later on,
1: this book. Right um and this project is the Rio Grande National Heritage Area. That's uh, right. The, the, the Northern, Northern Rio Grande National Heritage right, Area. Right. Um, so, um yeah, as you as you pointed out this is a kind of a very large area conceptually covered by this project. Um, but in your book you talk about a number of different examples, you're, you're working with a number of different cases, um the Palace of the Governors in Santa Fe and the market associated with it and then a number of different towns in New Mexico that are participating in what you talk, what you call a larger system of heritage production and management part of this multicultural ethic going on in this region at this time and i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the different places that you worked um and what kind of research you were doing there, just to introduce the area, make it more familiar to us.
0: Sure. Let me just say a few words, first of all, about the National Heritage Area model, and then I'll explain the different sites that I, that I analyze in the book. Sure. Um, the, the National Park Service in New Mexico was working with some uh, citizens to establish a National Heritage Area in north-central New Mexico. National Heritage Areas are both places and administrative frameworks. They're designated by Congress, and they represent living cultural landscapes. They provide a framework for for local communities to partner with the federal government to promote historic preservation, cultural conservation, economic development, and recreation, and and some other uh, goals as well. And so they they really exemplify a new, holistic, community-based model of conservation. And this particular heritage area, the northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area, was supposed to commemorate the 400-year coexistence of Spanish and Indian peoples in New Mexico. It grew out of earlier efforts that the National Park Service had worked on in the 1990s to commemorate the Spanish colonization of New Mexico. This was part of a multicultural project. The federal government was interested in commemorating the contributions of Hispanic peoples to American history. So New Mexico was a good place to do that. But that project proved to be very controversial and really exacerbated tensions between Native Americans and Hispanics in New Mexico. So the Park Service backed off a little bit and shifted its focus to celebrating multicultural coexistence rather than Spanish colonization. When I began my research in 2002, not much was happening with the heritage area. It was still just an idea. The heritage area was actually designated in 2006. So I had to zoom out a little bit and focus my research on other projects that were happening within this area uh, to commemorate heritage. So that's where the the sites that you mentioned come come up. The, The first site that I analyzed, and there's a chapter in my book on each one of these sites, is the Palace of the Governors. Which is a history and anthropology museum in Santa Fe that was established in 1909. And it occupies a building that was constructed by the Spanish around 1610. It's a very old historic building, and it's a history museum inside this building. And that chapter is really about the 20th century history of the Palace of the Governors, its development as a museum. And I argue that the Museum of New Mexico, which is a a state agency, uh, the state agency that's in charge of the museum, has created a very particular understanding of history in this museum, one that contrasts history with modernity. And I argue that, inadvertently, the museum has perpetuated the idea that Indians and Nuevo Mexicanos are relegated to the past, into history, while Anglos in New Mexico are sort of in charge of New, uh, New Mexico's present and future. So I in that chapter, I really draw on museum studies. I talk about the history of the museum, but I also spend a lot of time um, advancing a, a reading of exhibits in the museum today. So that chapter really draws on, on museum studies. Hmm. The second site, is right outside the Palace of the Governors. There's a an, a market of Indian artists that's actually sponsored by the Museum of New Mexico. So any anyone who's ever been to Santa Fe will certainly have seen this. It's sort of a quintessential New Mexican cultural experience to walk down the portal or the front porch of the Palace of the Governors and uh, look at the artwork that mostly jewelry and pottery that these Indian artists are selling and. In that chapter, I analyze the theme of authenticity in this market. And I talk about how the Museum of New Mexico and the artists themselves have worked hard to make the market seem authentic. And I talk about what that means for the artist and the tourist and the museum. And then I also analyze some scholars who have deconstructed the concept of authenticity. So I, I look at both the construction and the deconstruction of authenticity in that chapter and ultimately argue that we need to displace the concept of authenticity altogether because it's an, it's not a helpful concept. In fact, it's a politically dangerous concept, I argue. The third chapter is about the Española Valley, which is just about 20 miles north of Santa Fe it's a it's a region with a very deep cultural history and that chapter analyzes a series of efforts beginning in the 1990s to commemorate the Spanish colonization of New Mexico and especially the city of Española's creation of what they call a tricultural plaza the city of, the town of Española is a town of of about 10,000 people and it had a main street because it was a railroad town established in the 1880s, so that's sort of the mark of Anglo-American enterprise and capitalism, whereas all the the settlements around Española have plazas. And so in the 1990s, the mayor of Española decided that we need a plaza ourselves. Um, so they created this tricultural plaza that was supposed to represent the Indian, Hispanic, and Anglo cultures in northern New Mexico. So I analyzed that site and its development, and then also the series of efforts, commemorative efforts in the '90s to uh, to celebrate and commemorate Spanish colonization,
1: which, of course, were the fraught point between uh, different Spanish American, Mexican uh, people of Mexican heritage, and Indian groups.
0: Exactly, there were protests that erupted all over the state. Um, there were very dramatic protests, really interesting, complicated protests. So, yeah. Um, that chapter is really about recognition and the politics of recognition and heritage. And um, the the very difficult situation that Nuevo Mexicanos were in, being colonized by the United States, but also having colonized Native Americans. So they were both the colonizers and the colonized. And uh, that's a that, that means that they, they find themselves in a very difficult political and social situation a lot of the times. The, the final site that I analyze is a tiny mountain village called Las Trampas, which is uh, a, a Spanish colonial village that's very famous for its, archi- uh, its adobe architecture. And that chapter analyzes the history, the 20th century history of historic preservation campaigns in Trampas. Um, and I argue that Anglo historic preservationists, although they were very much in love with this village and its architectural and cultural heritage, uh, inadvertently perpetuated uh, American colonial hierarchies in uh, the way they uh, focused their preservation campaigns and simultaneously deflected attention away from the political and economic issues that were plaguing the village. So that, that, history, that chapter is pretty historical. Uh, and analyzes the the development of these various historic preservation campaigns
1: hmm. So you've talked about three different kind of theoretical critiques that you make of heritage and multiculturalism as they're deployed in New Mexico um, in these places that fall within the kind of nascent northern Rio Grande uh, national heritage area. And I guess I want to kind of walk through um in a little more detail the implications you you took away in talking about about each of these concepts so to start off with um when you're critiquing the palace of the governors and talking about uh how it portrays history um you make this claim of the problem of self of a lack of self reflexivity um that part of what is going on is that As you said, by making the Spanish and Indian heritage of the site so visible, the Anglo influence on the site, and in fact, the museum's influence, becomes invisible and is taken as normative, modern, um, not worthy of investigation because it's so normal and so, you know, kind of generic. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, there I see three main ways in which multicultural projects in New Mexico today challenge colonial hierarchies on the surface, but then reinforce them at a deeper level and, um, and
1: I should just note uh one quick thing. you do mention specifically that this is an unintentional process. this is not something that is as you point out this is not a conspiracy of uh, national park service employees and museum curators, but rather something that is in many ways, contrary and unintentional to their personal, if somewhat romantic, interests.
0: That's absolutely right. And I think that's important to say that uh, this is not a critique of bad people doing bad things, but rather I'm trying to understand a set of effects that are very much unintentional and oftentimes counterintentional. Oftentimes the projects that I see going on here in New Mexico have, in some ways, the opposite effects that they are intended to have. So the, what you what you mentioned going on at the Palace of the Governors is, is an, uh, an example of what I call the politics of visibility. And in multicultural projects in New Mexico, one of the things that I have noticed is that they tend to emphasize the cultures and his, histories and experiences of Native Americans and Hispanics. There's a widespread agreement that so that those cultures and histories are interesting and worth documenting, and that's certainly what tourists are most interested in. And while that seems, while that that emphasis seems to uh, support colonized groups, what I argue is that in fact uh, it leaves the colonizers, in this case Anglo Americans, in this sort of unassailable normative. Uh, modern space that can't be questioned. And that's certainly happening at the Palace of the Governors. So I argue that the way in which the Museum of New Mexico has interpreted this building gives visitors the impression that history ended in 1909 when this building became a museum. So the museum, whole mo- most of the 20th century history of the museum exists outside of history, which is this sort of normative modernity and i argue that that ultimately serves anglo interest by relegating indians and hispanics to the past and and leaving the present and the future of new mexico in in the purview of anglos
1: right and this is this is going on um, even as this site has actually been restored even in cases as you point out uh where pains of a day can do show the development of this building over time still stop short of pointing out its current existence as a museum in and of itself.
0: That's right. That's where the lack of self-reflexivity comes in. Uh, I I really myself like museums that draw attention to their own interpretive practices and invite visitors to ask questions about the museum's authority and interpretations. And none of that is going on at the Palace of the Governors. Uh, Even in the, the, the new museum that, has been built right behind the Palace of the Governors, the New Mexico History Museum, which is a fantastic museum. Uh, they've, they've done a really great job there, but there's no self-reflexivity. There's no invitation to question the museum's authority or its interpretations, and I think that that ultimately does a disservice to visitors who are left to only take a powerful institution's authority for for granted.
1: Right, and this um, this sense that the presence of Anglo-Americans, the kind of Anglo-American wave of colonization, is taken beyond history. It's become normative and normalized. also connects to your idea of authenticity, um, which you point out is something that is often ascribed to the past. Um, and you, you are pretty strongly critical of authenticity as a concept. As you said, you consider it politically dangerous. So tell us a little bit about Authenticity and the, uh, the market outside of the Palace of the Governors.
0: There's a lot of concern in New Mexico and in other parts of the world about cultural, people's cultural authenticity. But when you think about it, whose authenticity are we really concerned about? We're, we tend to be concerned about the authenticity of people who've been colonized, uh, not so much the dominant groups. I, I had a student once who very wisely pointed out to me, uh, we were in a... In a a discussion about Native American authenticity, nobody expects white people to drive horses and buggies around town because that's the way they used to do things. But for indigenous people, there are often very strong expectations that they maintain their past traditions. And in fact, a lot of Native Americans and indigenous people around the world face great scrutiny uh, when they do things that do not conform to the dominant culture's expectations about what authentic Indians do. Uh, we certainly see that coming up in the casino era today. There are a lot of anxieties in the United States today about Indians selling out or giving up their culture. And then the implication is then, well, if they've given up their culture, why should they have special legal rights at all? So, Authenticity is a really dangerous concept, I think, that is very unfairly associated with indigenous people and colonized peoples. And I argue that rather than be so uh, obsessed with the, the the degree to which indigenous people maintain their past traditions, which are oftentimes just imagined past traditions, um, we should encourage uh, more flex- flexibility and acknowledge people's rights to uh, live in the present and to, to shape their own futures in whatever way they they seem uh, they think is the best way to do that. So there's a lot of concern under the the port in the portal market at the Palace of the Governors about the authenticity of these uh, artists. In fact, in the 1970s, there was a a, court- a, a series of court cases where Anglo and Hispanic artists sued the Museum of New Mexico because then the Museum of New Mexico had made a policy that only Native Americans could sell in this space. So these other artists were not happy with that policy and argued that it was a form of racial discrimination. But the Museum of New Mexico, which won its two cases, argued that this is not racial discrimination. This is a cultural preference. This is a They called it a living cultural exhibit and therefore they argued that they had the ability and the need to exert their curatorial control over the market. So this raises all kinds of questions about who is selling under the market, what are they selling, how are they selling it, and there, this has been pretty contentious over the, uh, the last few decades. Um, and so I, there's a lot to say there. I won't go into too much detail, but Authenticity has been highly contentious. It's been very litigious under the Powell's uh, portal market.
1: One thing um, I would note about the market especially, however, is that you, you do point out that many of the kinds of regulations on the sellers in the market are not just the product of the museum, but of agreements made among the sellers themselves. And that many of them have their own interest, as you point out in the court case this concept of authenticity is part of what's allowing them to keep a preferential space in this market. So they have an economic interest in protecting that view of their authenticity, but at the same time, it also places a limit on them.
0: That's absolutely right. And I argue that this is not a simple case in which a colonial institution has imposed its will on indigenous peoples, which would be a a very simple kind of explanation to give because these artists are very much active participants in the development and the management of the market. And I think there are some economic motivations for the artists to conform to tourist expectations about authentic Indianness. But I ultimately argue that What I think is really going on here is this is an example of how identity and culture always work for all peoples. that all of us are always shaping our cultural identities in relationship to other people. That's true for Indians who develop their own cultural identities in relationship to non-Indians. But rather than be concerned about that, I think we might have a tendency to say, oh, it's too bad that the Native Americans are no longer autonomously determining their own cultural identities That would be a a mistaken interpretation, I think, because the reality is that all of us are negotiating and um, developing our own identities in relationship to other people. So I think that ultimately the portal market provides a good example of what's going on in all spaces. That's why I try to displace the concept of authenticity, because I argue that it's not a helpful way of understanding the social and political dynamics in this space.
1: You also point out that uh, another element of authenticity as a concept and something that is mentioned. You uh, repeat uh, remarks by both Anglos and Indians on this point is that an authentic culture must somehow be unconscious. It cannot be like the very idea that culture is constructed or that people are engaged in constructing and reconstructing their culture and their identity is itself inauthentic.
0: That's right. And that, that, interest in unconscious culture and people who are just living their lives without really thinking about what they are doing is really a fantasy of, of tourism and of anthropology, uh, but it's not reality. I think all peoples in all places have always been more or less conscious of what they're doing and why they're doing it.
1: And again, speaking of this kind of consciousness and especially the role that in this case, the two kind of more marginal groups At work in this multicultural paradigm in New Mexico, um, Indians and Nuevo Mexicanos, their role in multiculturalism is related to this concept of authenticity and also to what you talk about as the politics of recognition and the particular importance of being recognized as a group with a specific history and being able to display that history. And this is something that you. Bring up throughout the book, but especially um, as regards uh, Espanola, this city that creates its own plaza where it had none before. All right.
0: Uh, recognition is certainly a central theme of the book. And the politics of recognition has become a dominant form of multiculturalism in the United States and in and many countries like it, where subordinate groups seek social justice through recognition. And I'm, although I acknowledge throughout the book that recognition can have real concrete benefits for colonized peoples, and there are plenty of examples of those concrete benefits, I argue that recognition is ultimately uh,
1: an inadequate
0: uh, strategy for pursuing social justice One of the reasons why that's so is that, at least in New Mexico, the federal government has been very willing to recognize the cultures and histories of Native Americans and Hispanics. Uh, The National Park Service has certainly been at the forefront of that. But recognition often means, um, it's often divorced from any change in political economy. So in some cases, when a group is recognized by a government, that has real implications for its access to land or water, uh, its ability to uh, uh, to govern itself. But in New Mexico, there's been a lot of recognition that's gone on that has not led to any of those kind of changes. So that's why I argue that recognition is an inadequate. That for social justice. Another thing that's complicating this, and this is really clear in the Espanola chapter, is that both Indians and Nuevo Mexicanos are seeking recognition at the same time. Both groups feel injured, they both feel excluded and marginalized, and so they're both seeking recognition as a way to redress that sense of marginalization. But they're working sort of across purposes, so recognizing one group ends up hurting the other group and vice versa. So that's why when you start to look at a region that is multicultural in the sense of having multiple ethnic and cultural groups living together, recognition becomes a lot more complicated. And the sort of uh, standard scholarly model of recognition, which is based on uh, Hegel's philosophy, where you have the, the master recognizing the slave, it's a sort of a... Uh, Two part process where the master recognizes the slave, the slave recognizes the master. That's a mutual recognition. But when you have multiple groups, it becomes a lot more complicated. And I think the recognition has not only been a response to injury in New Mexico, but has actually exacerbated and, and worsened some injuries in, in New Mexico.
1: Specifically, um, uh, you talk about this conflict between groups uh, around Espanola and another villages in that area, towns and, and villages. Um, you're talking about the 400-year uh, the anniversary of the Spanish conquest, uh, all of these events that were occurring in the 1990s and led to, as you pointed out, protests and some acts of really symbolic uh, civil disobedience or, uh, in one particular case, vandalism of the, the statue of Oñate, the, uh, the conquistador. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about how that played out.
0: Sure. The 1990s was a really interesting period in, in New Mexico because 1992 was the Colombian Quincentennial, and then 1998 was the 400th anniversary of uh, Juan de Añate's colonization of New Mexico for Spain. So there were these two anniversaries that created really an explosion of discourse about Spanish colonization And especially the Oñate quadricentennial was highly controversial. So the statue that you mentioned uh, was an an interesting case. This is a a bronze statue of Oñate, the conquistador, that was uh, 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 put in a, a, a visitor center in a small community in northern New Mexico near the site of the original uh, Spanish capital in New Mexico. So Hispanics really felt like this was an opportunity to assert themselves, their place in American history, to reclaim some of their pride and dignity. They had, they were feeling pretty marginalized at this point. But you can imagine how Native Americans felt, and there are a bunch of Indian pueblos right around where the statue was, um, a lot of them said, hey, we don't want to celebrate Onyate. He, he we consider him to be like Hitler. So the views about Onyate were very polarized in the 1990s. Some people considered him to be a hero, others a villain. And so one night in 1998, uh, some vandals or protesters, depending upon your point of view, sawed off one of the statue's feet as a symbolic act. And this was a reference to something that happened in 1599, 400 years ago, when Oñate uh, was suppressing a rebellion at Acoma Pueblo in western New Mexico and ordered that the right feet of the men all be uh, uh, sawed off. So that event at Acoma in 1599 remains very, very painful and traumatic for Pueblo Indians today. And so the, the statue provided an opportunity for people who were unhappy with the, the way that rec- the, the politics of recognition was playing out in New Mexico to sort of make a very powerful, symbolic statement. Although the the vandals were never caught, and it remains unclear today who actually saw it off, off the foot of the statue.
1: And... Ironically, you note that the uh, U.S. general who occupied New Mexico uh, during the Mexican-American War, one anniversary related to him, there was no particular celebration or no particular recognition beyond that organized by, I think, his, uh, his own descendant.
0: That's, that's right. That's another great example of the politics of his ability. So while this war was raging in the 1990s between Indians and Hispanics over the commemoration of Spanish colonization, several anniversaries relating to the American colonization of New Mexico passed with almost no recognition whatsoever. And some white conservative commentators in New Mexico argued in the 1990s that this was sort of a form of reverse discrimination or political correctness that hurt Anglo-Americans. But I argue that, in fact, uh, this very unequal recognition served Anglo interest by, again, rendering American colonizers invisible.
1: Unlike Hispanics, they're not having to deal with the question of the fallout from their colonial past.
0: That's absolutely right. So Anglos were actually able to project the role of colonizer back onto the colonized the uh, Hispanics right, and let them deal with the consequences.
1: Another um, point of sort of kind of conflict or tension in this, this question of the politics of recognition, visibility that you point out in this chapter and also in your discussion of the uh, development of the Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area, which you record when you were doing your fieldwork, is the tension between different Hispanic identities, particularly between those in New Mexico who identify as Hispanos or Nuevo Mexicanos and those who identify with the Chicano movement, from which developed in the 1960s, 1970s, which ties in also to the relationship between Hispanics and Indians in the region because Chicanismo is in part uh, related to the idea of mestizaje or it has a combination of Hispanic and Indian identity markers at work there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Oh, yeah, gosh, that's really complicated and interesting. Um, the the ethnic boundaries in, in New Mexico are so complicated and porous. So. Uh, I guess I I think the the heart of your question is about Hispanic identities and the the multiple Hispanic identities that exist in New Mexico. So there are some Hispanics in New Mexico today who consider themselves to be Spanish or Spanish-American. And that's an identity that really coalesced in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, when, When the United States colonized New Mexico, it was part of Mexico, And most people considered themselves to be Mexicans. They identified as Mexicans. But when Anglos began arriving in the late 19th century, they really looked down on Mexicans. They thought of them as dirty and uncivilized. Uh, They were also very anxious about the potential for New Mexico to be integrated into the United States. So both Anglos and some elite Hispanics began identifying themselves as Spanish uh, or sort of reasserting the Spanish identity. And that meant European and white, mostly. So that facilitated the incorporation of New Mexico into the United States. And it also helped, it was a strategy for Hispanics to sort of at uh, ed- climb up uh, a new colonial ladder a little bit by reasserting their difference from Indians. So Indians were then put back down at the bottom of the colonial hierarchy. But not everyone in New Mexico then or now agrees with that strategy, and there are plenty of Hispanics today in New Mexico who identify themselves as Mexicanos or Chicanos or Nuevo Mexicanos uh, there are lots of different ways in which people identify themselves, and one of the issues is the, the relationship, as you said, between Indians and Hispanics. To so what degree of mixing is there? Some people are very proud of their mixed ancestry, of their mestizae, other people uh, are not. So, that is definitely a tension today in New Mexico between these various identities. It's made even more complicated by the fact that there are very recent immigrants from Mexico and other parts of Central America now living in New Mexico as well. So you have people who are actually Mexican nationals living alongside people who consider themselves to be Chicanos, living alongside people who consider themselves to be Spanish Americans.
1: And this ties in also to your point about how heritage, this, this concept of multiculturalism and heritage can unintentionally relegate. Uh, Hispanics or Indians of all different identities to the past, because this limits the recognition, as you you said of, of some of the newer immigrants to the region and also the, for example, the Chicano identity, which is so tied to political activism, especially in the, in the modern American mindset, these groups are distinctively active in a very modern sense. And I think you point this out quite well that when identity of when the identity of Hispanics in New Mexico is pegged solely to Spanish colonialism, those groups lose out to some degree in the politics of of, of uh, recognition or visibility.
0: That's right. I think that the the dominant cultural identities in New Mexico today are Anglo Spanish and Native American. And those are all conceived of in fairly essentialist uh, terms. The reality is much more complicated. The boundaries between those groups are very porous. There's lots of overlap. There's lots of mixing. But because the dominant narrative is of this tricultural region that includes three very distinctive groups, that really makes it difficult to recognize the social complexity that's uh, the reality here. Right.
1: So uh, tell us a little bit about Las Trampas and your your personal experience there. Was that That's the uh, last major chapter in the book, and you talk a bit about your own personal role as an anthropologist there. But also in that chapter you talk about some of the pressing political and economic issues um, that are related to especially land ownership because Las Trampas is a village which has been the planned site of various kinds of historical preservation initiatives, which have met with some degree of resistance from its inhabitants and people in the area.
0: So uh, Las Trampas is a village, it's a tiny village, it has about 100 residents in, in the mountains of northern New Mexico that has both witnessed devastating land loss and has attracted cultural admirers throughout the 20th century. So there's a, 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 it's ironic, I think, that Anglo-preservationists have portrayed this village as being culturally intact and admirable at the same time that the village was, in terms of its political and economic basis, really in a crisis. So in that chapter, I look at the 20th century history of historic preservation efforts and the ways in which Anglo-preservationists have represented um, this village, and I argue that there are sort of two dominant discourses about this village. One is that the village is a, a isolated, uh, culturally pure, self-sufficient agricultural community that has changed very little over time. That's a romantic discourse. The other discourse is that this is a village that is hemorrhaging residents and cultural integrity, and it needs to be saved. Both of these discourses, I argue, uh, support the American colonial status quo in in New Mexico by deflecting attention away from the devastating effects of American colonization. So the chapter is really, uh, most of the chapter is me analyzing uh, text and historical events from the past. But at the end of the chapter, I, the chapter becomes much more self-reflexive, and I think about my own relationship to this village and the own text that I'm producing myself. And I argue that actually the kind of representation that I'm doing is in many ways very similar to the representations that all these people that I'm critiquing have done. So that's another example where I consider the relationship between colonialism and anthropology. And so as I was doing this research, I was pretty uh, anxious about my inability to do meaningful fieldwork in this village. So I really wanted to provide the, the villagers themselves with an opportunity to represent themselves, which previous writers had not really done. The only problem was that every time I went to the village, I I couldn't find anyone. There was nobody around, and I didn't have the courage to start knocking on doors to just kind of uh, interview people about their experiences. So several years passed with me not really being able to be a good anthropologist and do good research in this village. I had, I thought I was doing a good job writing about the Anglo writers who had represented the village, but here I was kind of just like another Anglo writer representing the village. So eventually, I came back, and a friend of mine uh said that he would go with me to the village and maybe facil- facilitate some introductions and I had this really interesting experience where we went up uh, to the village one day and he, my friend Sam began knocking on people's doors uh He is him, himself a noble mexicano and felt very comfortable doing this. We eventually found uh the woman who had the key to the church and and Sam my friend uh convinced her to to open the church for us so we could go inside and and look inside. And we walked and talked for a while, and then finally I asked this woman, who had been quite friendly, if it would be possible for me to come back and talk to her some more later in the week about the village and preservation and all the issues that I was interested in. And she told me no, that she was very busy. And so then we asked if there was somebody else that I could talk to. And she said, no, there wasn't. So I got the the message that that um, it would be inappropriate for me to push any further uh, in my research in this village. And I that was a message that I respected. That this is a group of people who have been uh, rep- misrepresented for a very long time. She had no reason to uh, trust me. Uh, and... She was doing a great job, as the villagers have done, in maintaining their privacy. So I sort of hold up this example um, uh, as an illustration of the ways in which communities can resist the processes of recognition and representation that outsiders have really controlled over the last century. Although I end up arguing that I, I can't really make any strong arguments about this community because of my inability to do research there. So I, I really try to be quite self critical and to suggest that I am not the best guide to understanding what's going
1: on in this village. Even so, I think uh I think overall your presentation, at least of the history there, was very informative to just how the very kind of anthropological process that you are engaging in self-critique has in some ways led up to the point that you reached uh, while you were doing your own work. Thank you. In closing uh, your book, you talk about how multiculturalism could be in some ways redirected towards a more equitable, more just kind of relationship between Individuals and groups in New Mexico, could you talk a little bit about your particular view there? just your thoughts on that particular subject
0: yes it was it was important for me most of the book is quite critical, but it was important for me to to offer some constructive conclusions at the end of the book because i I am concerned about colonialism and multiculturalism, and I do think there are uh, ways of improving our, our, our current political strategies. So there are really three things that I suggest at the end of the book that would make for a more just form of multiculturalism. And these three suggestions relate to the, the three ways in which I think multiculturalism has inadvertently reinforced uh, colonial hierarchies in the past. So I'm trying to sort of undo some of those processes. But first of all, with the politics of visibility, While I think it's important to recognize and cast a positive light on subordinate groups, I think it's equally important to render colonizers and dominant groups visible in public public history and public culture. So this would mean rendering Anglo-American tourists, anthropologists, developers, capitalists visible in public heritage productions so that we can start to think critically about the effects and legacy of American colonization in New Mexico. So long as angles are invisible, that kind of discussion is very difficult to have. So the first suggestion I make is to to render dominant groups visible in heritage productions. Another reason for doing this is because it helps to dismantle this idea that some people have culture and other people are modern which I think is a very politically dangerous kind of idea. So to bring Anglo, Anglos into view as historically and culturally particular actors in New Mexico. So that's the first suggestion. Once that becomes possible, my second suggestion is to repoliticize heritage, repoliticize cultural interpretation, so that culture no longer becomes a distraction from political economy. So I talk throughout the book about what I call the anti-politics of culture, this tendency for culture to deflect attention away from politics and economics. I think that also helps to reinforce colonial hierarchies. So undoing that means that not only are we able to bring Anglos into view, but that we're able to talk openly and honestly about the effects of colonialism the cultural effects, the political and economic effects. So I think repoliticizing culture and heritage is crucial for creating a more just form of multiculturalism. And then the third suggestion that I make has to do with authenticity, Uh, displacing the concept of authenticity altogether. I think authenticity is a constraining view. It's socially and uh, politically restraining for subordinate groups. And if we can displace... Place, the concept of authenticity altogether, it opens up all kinds of new possibilities for political coalition building. Uh, it helps to break down some of those ethnic boundaries that actually reinforce the status quo, and it, it makes it possible for groups to uh, work, begin working together to focus on their present and their future rather than being bound to the past. So those are the sort of three suggestions I make at the end of the book.
1: Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. But in closing, uh, can you tell us a little bit bit about what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, I'm actually in New Mexico right now on a year-long sabbatical. very fortunate to be able to be here doing new field work on efforts to revitalize small-scale agriculture in northern New Mexico. So, uh, New Mexico is a, a region with a very ancient agricultural history, but over the course of the 20th century, um, in New Mexico, as in many parts of the United States, agriculture really declined. But a lot of people are working here now to revitalize small-scale local organic agriculture, and I'm trying to understand that process and really just kind of uh, trying to keep up with all the amazing work that's going on right now to, to revitalize agriculture. So. I'm, meeting a lot of farmers, hanging out at farmer's markets, and working with a number of different groups who are um, trying to support local agriculture.
1: Well, good luck with your work, and it's been great having you on the show, Tom.
0: Thank you so much, Bryce.